Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to China Corner Office, a podcast produced in partnership with SupChina, featuring conversations with business leaders from around the world about the challenges and opportunities of doing business in China, the world's most dynamic economy. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor of business at Cornell, where I teach and research on this same topic. Every episode, we talk to an executive at a company doing business in China and explore what has led to their personal and business success and also some of the challenges they've encountered along the way. With geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China on the rise, understanding how business can compete in China is more important now than ever. If you're interested in doing business in China or are looking for insights to adjust your current business strategy, this is the show for you. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we're talking to Wilkie Wong, Managing Director of Production Planning and Logistics at Escale Group, a $1.3 billion U.S. dollar vertically integrated apparel enterprise founded in 1978 and headquartered in Hong Kong. This family-owned company supplies shirts to leading brands and retailers around the world. Escale is the world's largest woven shirt producer, making about 100 million shirts annually. Wilkie, who has an MBA from the MIT Sloan School of Management and has previously worked at McKinsey, oversees the company's vast production planning and control functions and is responsible for aligning sales demand and production capacity and managing the company's logistics function. The China success story of the past 40 years has been built by manufacturers such as Escal. However, with rising labor costs and automation and technological advances on the horizon, the future of such traditional industries is in question. I am very much looking forward to discussing the future of manufacturing in China with Wilkie. Wilkie, welcome to China Corner Office. Thank you, Chris. Well, thank you for having me. Great. Well, you know, first, I'd just love to get started with some background. Can you please describe the history, history of Escal and current company position in China and elsewhere? Okay, well... Thank you very much, Chris. Um, glad to be with you here today. Well, uh, as you have introduced, uh, the company was founded in 1978, so we are in our 42nd year. Comparing to a lot of the players in Hong Kong in the apparel industry, we are actually one of the newcomers. Uh, we started in 1978, and um, if you know, then this is also the year where China opened up. So in fact, the founder of the company, uh, Mr. Yao Yang, he saw the opportunity when China opened up and started at scale, uh, thinking that to leverage the China's uh, fast, labor, fast labor market and to use it as a manufacturing base for a lot of the, uh, for the markets in the West. So this is really the start of the, the uh, company. And since then, a lot of the development of Escal is closely tied to the development of China. You have a, a large uh, facility in Gaoming, I know. Was that the initial uh, investment, or what was it from Hong Kong that they started manufacturing the shirts? Well, actually, Gaoming is something which was started much later. At the beginning, uh, when China first opened up, foreign investment is not allowed directly into China. So a few of our manufacturing facilities was really in countries like Mauritius and Malaysia. So there's a history to it because uh, 
for those who still remember, the apparel industry used to be quarter regulated. So the major markets, uh, it's in the West, in the US, in Europe. And in order for any of the developing markets to produce their goods, uh, produce their shirts and enter the US, uh, they will need uh, quotas. And at that time, when the company first started, uh, we had quotas in places like Mauritius and Malaysia. So that's how our company got started. Now, later on, uh, as we developed, uh, we also engaged in what we call the uh, compensatory trade in China, where we provide the capital so that the manufacturers in China could upgrade their equipment. And then we'll also be buying the, we'll be sending them the raw materials and they will be producing the shirts for us. And using that as a way to, to pay for their equipments that we have purchased for them. So this is the early form of trade before we can directly invest in China. So in China, well, it started in 1988 in Gaoming, well, which is, it's in the Guangdong province, uh, three hours away from Hong Kong. But at that time, it is a relatively uh, undeveloped area in China or in Guangdong province, in fact. So a lot of the infrastructure, a lot of the things that we have to build there from scratch. So, and since then, we have, this has become one of our largest uh, manufacturing sites. So right now we have spinning, uh, we make fabric, we make garments. Uh, we also even make our accessories like buttons and labels there. Uh, right now it employs about 20,000 people in Gaoming. Uh, and it's a very important part of our supply chain. Yeah, one of the reasons I asked about Gaoming, as you know, I've actually visited that plant. And, you know, one of the things that really stood out to me, you know, you mentioned that, you know, early on it was a very undeveloped area. You know, that Escal has been very involved in, you know, developing the infrastructure, uh, community outreach, et cetera. So can you say a little bit about the strategy uh, of the Gaoming plant and maybe even some of your other plants about, you know, working with the community to, you know, develop the area? Sure. So I think one thing we, have all, we all need to recognize is that we are in the textile and apparel industry, uh, which is always going to be a labor-intensive industry. So um, in our facility in Gaoming, I mentioned that we have 20,000 people. And in other sites, uh, such as that in Vietnam where we have, uh, we have a total of like another 10,000 people in Vietnam in three different locations. So the nature of the industry means that we have to uh, be interacting with a lot of the people. And of course, with the people that are working for us, then they have their family members that are living in the community. So a people part, uh, a, the people engagement is a big part of our work, in fact. In fact, if you think more broadly, the textile and apparel industry is often the first rung of a lot of industries, uh, a lot of countries' industrialization. So we are tasked with converting the uh, a big population primarily from the agricultural industry to the industrial industry. So as a result of that, uh, we have to engage our workers to be able to train them with the necessary skills uh, to perform well in the production and also to, to gain a life skill that is going to be useful for them. So this underlies our people strategy. And more specifically, we also have a, uh, we also engage in the community because of the various uh, activities that we do. Uh, aside from the labor intensive apparel making part, we are also in the textile making. Well, the textile industry is notorious for its pollution. Well, the joke sometimes is you just have to look at the color of the river and you will know what's the fashion color uh, for the coming season. But it need not be that. So we, uh, it's important for us to demonstrate to the community that the production uh, is not going to be a polluting to the environment where they live. Uh, and in fact, uh, there's that, that's an important part of it so that they will have a positive impression and they will also support our operations. So some of the things that we have done is, for example, uh, when we work with our workers trying to upgrade their skills, uh, in, we always wanted to convert our workers from a manual worker into technicians. So some of the things that we have teach them is we teach them coding. Well, it's not so different from how uh, people are teaching their primary school students STEM. 
we started off with a program called the App Inventor, uh, which is developed by the MIT Media Lab that you can use the Android phone and start doing some uh, app coding. Now, the reason why this is important is that while they may not be coming up with apps that we can use in the shop floor, it is an important thing so that they get comfortable uh, with using a computer. So when we introduced the technology into the shop floor, they are comfortable using it and they are comfortable trying it out. And in fact, when they learn it, they one of the benefits is that the mother uh, who may be working for us can go back and teach their kids how to, how to do a app programming. I think that's a great way to actually engage the family and also, also to raise the social status of the mother at home. <laughs> That's so interesting. You know, it's, it's funny, you know, my children are learning various um, similar type of things actually from, from MIT. I forget the name of it. I think Scratch might be it. Yep, sort of, yeah, yeah. So, so I've actually learned. So in the U.S., it's sort of the opposite. You know, the adults are learning uh, from the kids. That's a great, um, that's a great, great example of your um, of your work. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned that it has a benefit to you, long-term benefit, that these folks are then much uh, better positioned to integrate with with the computer technology, et cetera. You know, the, the wide-ranging set of like social and community investments you do, can you say a little bit more about some of the other, other benefits those may have? I mean, clearly this is the right way to treat employees, but, you know, maybe vis-a-vis -vis some of your international consumers, some of the governments that you're interacting with, you know, you know, what sort of credit in some way do you get for these investments? Well, I think there's a number of ways we can look at all these investments. One is, obviously, you mentioned from a customer perspective. Well, you can take a, some of the people look at this as a defensive means. So in our industry, there are um, our customers will often have a department called the Corporate Compliance Department or the uh, CSR, uh, Corporate Social Responsibility Department. Well, their primary objective to people like ourselves is that they will arrange social audits, uh, making sure that our work, we paid our workers on time, uh, we paid our uh, proper overtime wages to our workers, all the work and safety protocols are being followed. So this is a defensive way of looking at it. From our perspective, we look at it as saying, well, if we can proactively do that, well, first of all, from the customer's perspective, then they can sleep better at night because oftentimes um, one of the things that brands don't want to see is that one day when they open up their newspaper, on the front page, they see some of the NGOs protesting in front of the stores about the, some of the labor practices in their, among the suppliers that they have used. So by proactively doing what we're doing, and being able to openly demonstrate that to our customers. That allows the customers to have better confidence on us. Uh, that also allows them to uh, place their orders with us more safely. So that's one of the benefits from the customer side. On the environmental side, it is also an important aspect because it is not just a commitment to the customer. It is also a commitment to our own employees because if you think about this, uh, well, the people that we employ live in the same neighborhood uh, of where we operate. So if any of the pollution um, it's happens around the community, that has a direct impact on the people, uh, on the uh, our people's community. So with that, I think it is also an assurance to our own people that we operate the work safely, we operate uh, environmentally sound. And also, there's actually a direct benefit to all this is because when we operate in an environmental way, well, it also needs the, the co uh, cooperation of our own people. Say, for example, if they see a leaking steam pipe, then they will need to proactively tell uh, the engineers coming in and fix it. So all these education, all these um, direct demonstration, it's an important part so that all of these environmental improvement opportunities get captured um, right away. Now, I think it's also important, I think, to say is maybe 30 years ago, uh, we live in an age where uh, the company gets to choose the people. But I think people now talk about the war for talent. That means, well, as a company, we have to convince our people why they have to join us. I think nowadays, a lot of the people uh, that we want to recruit, especially the good ones, uh, they it's not only just finding a good job, 
For them, it is also important to find a job that they can be proud of. They feel that they are making a difference uh, through their work to society. So I think a lot of these activities also make our people more engaged, uh, which allows us to also making them ambassadors for the company, uh, which also helps us to recruit and also retain our people. So I think all in all, uh, we're not doing these uh, social engagements or training. We are not treating this as a pure uh, corporate responsibility activities, which is really just to fulfill the basic minimum. We are seeing that as a part of our business strategy. In fact, I think it is good to think that good CSR is actually a good business. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure, you know, like you're saying, sort of the war for talent, I know, is something that, you know, a lot of the companies that I talk to in the U.S., I mean, they're, you know, seeing this as well, that actually sort of the values and social responsibility they have is very useful in attracting, um, you know, top talent. And it sounds like that's the case uh, for for you as well. Um, You touched on the computer integration in, in some way when you're talking about sort of the code, the coding classes. I'm curious as well if you could say a little bit more about, you know, computerization, automi- automation, sort of the technology investments in the factory. And, you know, you see on the, you know, TV and media, you know, many factories going completely automated, you know, I'd love to hear, given particularly your position working in the production planning uh, and logistics area, you know, what Eskel's position is regarding um, uh, automation and and how you're working on that. Sure. Well, automation is an interesting topic because uh, it is actually a very difficult thing to automate or completely automate the making of a shirt. Well, you are dealing with a product that is not a steel frame, but really a piece of fabric, which is soft. So this is one of the things that it's very easy for a human to, a human hand to pick up a piece of soft fabric, but it is actually much more difficult for a robot to actually do the same. So uh, some of the people have previously argued that uh, the apparel manufacturing is one of the most difficult industry to to automate, and also because of the the benefit of uh, of automating the apparel manufacturing, uh, you are competing with people with low labor costs. So the economics also make it less attractive uh, to automate. We actually look at automation uh, in a slightly different way. It is not just about replacing people uh, with the robots. I think the automation allows our people to work more productively. So instead of using uh, robots as a substitution, we're using it as a productivity enhancement for our workers. So for that, uh, we need to make sure that how the robot actually works with our workers, I think that's an important part. So rather than having it as a separate division or a separate operation, how our robots can work side by side with our workers. So that's why in our case, it's not that we do a lot of like fully automation like that you see in a automobile manufacturing line. We see a lot of semi-automation that is being applied in our manufacturing activities. So say, for example, um, when you have to sew a collar, instead of having seeing, thinking about a robotic arm to actually do the sewing, we are attaching templates so that the workers, the work, we call it the skilling. So when that get these skilled, they can uh, improve their productivity when they actually do the same operation, especially when they work on an operation that they are less familiar with. In this industry, we keep talking about the notion of hiring skilled workers. So for some of the operation, it may take like six months to get a worker uh, at a very good efficiency after repeatedly doing the, the activities uh, for, for an extended period of time. But by using these semi-automations, these templates, these these skilling activities, it allows someone like you and me to basically sit in the line and to conduct that activity with a relatively good efficiency. I think this is particularly important because when you look at the whole production line, the output of the whole line can be uh, can be brought down if some of the key operators were absent that day. But by de-skilling some of the operations, people can move around better. And because we pay them group rates, so that means that they, how much they get paid 
is based on the overall output of the line rather than their individual work. So it is important for them to be able to use these uh, descaling tools to make sure that the line operates in a, with good output and that also helps improve the income of our people. So that is one part of the automation that we see it. The other part of the automation is really also to th improve the quality of the goods that we produce. Uh, one of the challenges in, in, in the industry is that because so much of the activity is controlled by human dexterity. So um, if someone that is less skilled was, was new to the job, then they may produce goods that are, that are not acceptable. But the quality inspection process, they might, have, they might slip through. Or we need to put in a lot of QCs just to inspect the, uh, the, uh, the output. So by having the semi-automation that is being applied, it improves the consistency of the output. So this is also an improvement on the quality. So that is also as important as to improving the productivity of the line. Not to mention the predictability, because uh, once we apply the automation, the, f the variation between processes will be, more, will be within a tighter range as supposed to be uh, operating it by just by the workers. So as a result, I think the whole line becomes more predictable. We're able to re uh, remove more of the bottlenecks in the production, leading to a much leaner uh, operation flow. Yeah, very useful and helpful examples to how that can be applied to, to, to the textiles. And I think it's, it's also particularly interesting that, you know, because of the way fabric is, that in some ways, you know, textiles might be one of the last um, industries to, fu to fully automate. You know, that makes me think, though, that, you know, labor costs have been rising quite a bit in China. This is, you know, very much in the news. Probably you experience it. You know, you're very familiar with this. I'm curious, you know, in China, uh, Escal has developed, you know, a, you know, the button manufacturers, you know, an amazing sort of set of sort of close logistics supply chain, you know, uh, you know, an impressive factory that's that's automated and as well as, you know, has human capital in it that probably lowers a lot of cost as the labor cost is rising. But other places, you know, be it uh, Vietnam or Malaysia or uh, other other locations, you know, with really low labor costs might offset some of that. I'm curious how you think about, you know, the, you know, keeping your manufacturing in China versus going to other places. Well, this is a very interesting question. Uh, in fact, this is a, uh, I guess, a century-long question for the industry. If you think about the whole apparel manufacturing, it used to be manufactured in the place where the market is. But starting in the 50s and the 60s, you're seeing that the manufacturer, well, the markets is in the West, whereas the, uh, the factories are in the East, starting with Japan, and then later on moving to the four dragons in Asia, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, South Korea. And then later on, people talk about the ASEAN and, of course, China uh, in 1978 and beyond. So the notion of moving to the next low labor cost country, it's a core strategy for many people in our industry. We actually, at scale, we, we take a very different perspective because if you think about this, uh, the notion of chasing the low labor cost means that in order for the company to remain profitable, our colleagues, the people that we employ, has to remain poor. So this is, this is a really strange notion because uh, if the company's success is on, created on the basis of uh, make it, keeping our people poor, that's not a very sustainable solution. So the way we look at it is rather than chasing the cheap lowest labor cost country, we try to raise the productivity of our people. So that's why earlier when we mentioned automation, a lot of the focus is really on how do we raise the productivity of our people using technology. I think that's really what's uh, driving us forward. And in fact, um, the same applies to the people in China, uh, the fact our factories in China, our factories in Vietnam and other places. Because in all of those places, there is the, well, the labor cost inflation, um, people expecting higher wages as, they, as the economy develops. So it is important for us to achieve the productivity gains such that we can continue to pay our workers more to retain their service. 
Well, uh, Chris, you're probably familiar with China to the extent that you know um, there are a lot of people are instead of going to a factory, they are being doing food delivery. So that's the kind of competition that we are facing. So we need to make sure that our work is competitive compared with the other uh, labor alternatives. And in China, this is particularly important because there are just a lot more of these alternatives available driven by technology. So in some way, you, are thinking, you can think of that, how we can use technology to raise labor productivity. Um, and, that's a, and that's a challenge for people like us in the position to actually make that happen. And this is also the mission that the, that the companies has given us. Well, so when we look at the labor man, well, the manufacturing, uh, it is important not to just look at the lowest labor cost, but also look at what would be the productivity. Uh, so the unit labor cost in economics terms, I think that is more relevant. And in fact, uh, they, there's a lot of things that we still see uh, that have not been used in the uh, apparel industry. So, because I think the notion of the, the labor cost is so cheap that it is not economical to improve productivity or it is just easier to move your operations to a lower cost market. That has historically prevented a lot of people from investing in productivity improvement activities. So if you think about nowadays, well, people talk about the Bangladesh, Myanmar, um, Ethiopia, Kenya, and all that. Well, it's first of all, it is not that easy nowadays to actually move uh, from a uh, one country to another. The learning curve from going from one place to another is much higher. So that's why in part of our strategy, uh, instead of finding that we have not been open, the last country that we have entered in a scale is Vietnam, and that happened 15 years ago. Well, since then, many of our customers and even internally, some of our colleagues asking why are we not opening up factories in other uh, countries. Our, our strategy, our belief is that instead of moving to another country, I think it is important for us to create the depth in the country that we operate. Because once you established a base in a country like Vietnam, for example, we started the first operation was 15 years ago. The second operation was actually uh, uh, eight years after that. So there's a long time between the first one and the second one. And the notion for that is because, uh, well, if we have a team of people that operates, then we, we know the country, we have, a, we have the resources, we have the, uh, the understanding of the country. So it is important for us to continue to develop in that country rather than thinking about what's the next country that we move to. There's a lot of tacit knowledge when you set up an operation that you can't really easily replicate or replicate that in a short period of time to a different country. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Going deep and, you know, really riding the productivity curve um, in, in some ways as opposed to just chasing the lower um, wages. And as you mentioned, I mean, I think it's a really important point that, you know, companies that do that, it's all about, you know, the workers stay poor. And and I've appreciated hearing how you're helping to, um, to enhance the livelihoods of your workers. Focusing on, you know, continually increasing the productivity, in some ways, that's a, you know, never ending chase for marginal profit, generally speaking. Uh, you know, I know that Escal has focused on maybe moving to some branded product lines, uh, and, and I'd love to hear a little bit about that, you know, diversifying beyond, you know, high volume, low margin types of activities to, you know, lower volume, but higher margin activities. Sure. Well, this is one of the things that we have been internally discussing, because for the past 40 years, the company remains a, a predominantly an OEM or an ODM manufacturer, um, basically servicing the, uh, the branded customers. So we have always wanted to develop our own branded business. Um, it has been a long journey and also a learning journey for us. I think this year, uh, COVID actually gave us a, uh, an impetus to actually do that much more aggressively than previous years. Part of the reason is because 
many of our customers, their retail has also been suffering. So in this case, um, it is a perfect opportunity to actually come up with the confidence, come up with the determination to develop our own branded business. Uh, we started off, one of the things that we started off this year was that we developed a reusable mask. Uh, mask is not something that we produce regularly. We Our main product has remained to be shirts. But because of the COVID situation this year, we started a mini project, uh, really just thinking about build, uh, producing some reusable masks with antibacteria, with uh, water repellent features. As a start, it was really just an internal project because we couldn't source masks for ourselves. So we have fabric, we have the capability, we have the chemistry, so why not make our own mask? And at that time, the community around us, both in China as well as that in Hong Kong, there's a, there's a panic of not enough masks. So we're thinking of that, let's produce... 100,000, half of that for our internal use, half of that for donation to the public. Well, that 100,000 masks at the beginning, right now it's more like 40 million masks that we have produced already. Wow. So uh, in, in some way, I mean, it demonstrated that, well, first of all, it's the capability that we have, the, the knowledge that we have. We can uh, move that knowledge from producing a shirt into producing a, a mask that has the necessary features to protect people from COVID. And also the having the, uh, the connections, the business relationship to be able to sell the mass through our channels. And also, uh, I think it's most importantly, the confidence that people has within, with the scale name, because um, we are, obviously we are not a traditional player like the 3M producing the, uh, the PPEs. So people will be wondering, like, will the mask that we produce has the necessary protective features that is good enough for the COVID? The reputation of the company actually is very important in this case because a lot of people come to us and they say, well, you have been producing quality goods and you have been an ethical company for so long. And if you, for the mask that you have produced and also with the test reports that we have shown them, they they have the confidence in that mask that it is of a quality that is good enough to protect their people from COVID. So that gives us a lot more confidence in developing our own design products and own branded products. So that's that's one major step as we develop our own branded business. All along, we have this retail brand called Pi, uh, which has remained small and it was purposely remained small for many years. The purpose is really to understand how the retail market works and also to allow us to learn the necessary things about how to become a retailer. Well, some people might say that you have been producing the shirts, so selling it must be very easy. Actually, it's a very different business between a manufacturer and a retailer. In fact, the whole mindset, uh, the mentality of the people being a manufacturer, uh, you nickel and dime to yourself to death because that's a way how you make money. But then when you're a retailer, then your focus is not just about cost savings. It is about how to grow the revenue and also how to serve the customers um, and coming up with the product that you think they will like rather than just taking orders from your branded customers. So this is something that we have been doing a lot more in the last uh, 12 months. Well, we started off expanding the business uh, that I mentioned about the mass business. We've also launched or, or we have strengthened the, uh, our second brand called the Determinant, uh, which is a provider of the core basic shirts, uh, which arguably like uh, gentlemen like you and me having a core items in their wardrobe. Uh, this is also well, th this is a part of the business that we are growing that in China and also having some e-commerce business that are being servicing to other parts of Asia as well. So all of these, I think it's still, honestly speaking, right now it is still a early part of our journey. Um, the business remains small relative to the OEM part of the business, but it is a growing part of the business that we are putting a lot more focus in. Another part of the business that we are also just developing is that uh, in early on, we talked about some of the automation that we uh, have been applying. In fact, for the past 10 years, uh, we are not only a user of the automations or just buying the equipments 
from our suppliers. We have been actually manufacturing our own automated equipment uh, that we use it ourselves. Part of it was driven out of necessity because we see a lack of interest from the suppliers in our market. And part of it is really out of necessity for us to drive productivity improvements in our own operations. Now, after 10 years of developing our own in-house automation uh, machineries, we are just starting a business that we are selling these automated machineries to the outside. Now, uh, it, again, I mean, this, this, we have just had our first sales of the business. It's still very small. We're talking about a rounding error in our books, but that's a, that's a start of how we sell technology, how we leverage technology, and to use that uh, to create a new revenue stream. Can you say, give an example of some of the technology that you're creating? Okay. Well, um, going back to the uh, making of a shirt, for example. So you think about a shirt, every shirt has like two, uh, two cuffs. And the sewing of the cuffs, well, it is not just about sewing the cuff, but also you have the, uh, have the interlining in, inside and also you have to sew the button. So if you decompose a regular shirt, a dress shirt, it may have like uh, 40-some steps when you actually manufacture it. So making of a cuff is a, is a, is a process, making of a collar is a process, etc. So some of our auto machines is that by placing the, uh, the fabric panel onto the machine, it will say, for example, open the buttonhole for you instead of... Um, and then we can do it four at a time. So allowing our people to actually free up their time and, con- uh, and then operate, for, say, for example, more than one machines. Again, I mean, we mentioned about the, all these automation helps to improve not just productivity, but also quality of the operations. So we see that as there, there is a market for that, even for some of the um, so-called low-cost countries, because... I think one thing that we learned from COVID is that uh, the risk of having a labor-intensive operation, uh, that, that there's an inherent risk to that. So some of these automation could help in, uh, reduce the labor dependency of the operation. I think that that's one of the uh, selling points. Uh, as people realize during COVID. Uh, so in regard to COVID, you mentioned, you know, having the, this really interesting opportunity regard to the masks that you could make best based on the chemistry and, and your sewing capability. Uh, I'm curious, as an OEM, what effect it had on your, your production. Um, uh, for instance, having a lot of folks inside of a factory, probably there might have been limitations on it that at, at some point. So yeah, I'm curious more broadly how COVID affected your operations. Sure. Well, one of the early things uh, in COVID is uh, obviously it impacted China much earlier. It was in February, right around Chinese New Year, that we heard about a new strain of virus called the COVID. So at that time... Um, we people are much more cautious, but I think when people return to work, um, we have to install these protocols in terms of like doing temperature checks at the door, uh, having people to wash their hands uh, during uh, be, before going to work, and even to, at the canteen, uh, we spread out the shifts in the canteen so that less people will be eating in the same place. So all of these measures. Um, is there to improve the uh, the well-being? Uh, is there to improve the uh, the health awareness of our people? I think this is one of the things that we have always been advocating. But when it comes to COVID, um, awareness of personal hygiene, uh, the wellness aspect of a well-being of the people, I think that becomes that becomes an important part to light. So one of the things that allow us to further engage our workers, for example, is. Right now in our operations, we provide healthy meals to people. Um, it used to be the case that in one of our canteens, we will be providing just vegetarian meals um, for people who adopt a vegetarian diet or people who would like to live a healthier, um, uh, have a healthier diet. Right now, we even have these um, healthy campaigns that we run with our workers. So, for example, in our operation, we have new, we have a relatively new operation in Guilin, where they have people to install an app, where they run a continuous twenty-one days health program. Um, so, by 
COVID actually, uh, when it comes to health, now especially in the case where China, the situation of COVID is much uh, better controlled. We have turned the COVID into a more a health awareness um, exercise with our people, uh, teaching them the importance of wellness, uh, not just physically but also mentally. As you can imagine, during this period of time, um, the mental health is also an important thing uh, to to uh, make sure that our people are aware of their mental health and also seeking help if they need. So I think all in all, I think the overall COVID allows us to take a further step when we engage our people, um, not just talking about workplace safety or work, uh, environmental uh, impact, but also in terms of their own personal well-being. I think one of the beliefs is that in our industry, absenteeism is something that we closely monitor because um, that will also affect the production. So by, by advocating a healthier lifestyle with the people, um, our absenteeism will go down and also our turnover rate will also go down. So I think that also helps us to uh, improve our productivity. Interesting. I mean, how, how you're able to really, you know, take this and, and develop a more sort of proactive uh, health health program. Um, uh, one, one additional question I, I have is about your sort of further supply chain. So I know that your uh, cotton growing and initial processing is in Xinjiang and has come under some critique uh, recently, you know, placed on, on the U.S. entity list. You know, I'd love to you know, from visiting Esquel and hearing about the Xinjiang operations over many, many years, probably, you know, I've visited probably three times over 10 years now, you know, th this was a surprise to me. Uh, and I'd love to hear what, you know, sort of your and Esquel's responses uh, to this, um, to this situation. Well, thank you, Chris, for raising this point. Obviously, Xinjiang is a sensitive topic um, right now, especially uh, in the, in the Sino-U.S. relationship. But I think it's actually an important point for us to address because uh, in a scale, we have been proud of being in Xinjiang for over 20 years. Uh, the fact that Xinjiang grows some of the best quality cotton uh, in China or arguably best quality cotton in the world, that was the reason why we entered Xinjiang uh, 20 some years ago uh, for the cotton. So our... Uh, one of the accusations on our company, which led us to be on the Commerce Department's entity list, was that it, uh, one of our spending bills was allegedly employing forced labor. Uh, I think for the record, I would like to say it that we have not and we will not engage any forced labor in our operations. Um, and we are right now actively uh, submitting our evidence to the U.S. Commerce Department, trying to overturn our, um, the ruling, trying to get ourselves off the entity list. So I think our, and our U.S. Uh, advisors are helping us to engage with the U.S. government for that. So that's, that's what we're doing on the official side. Well, to understand a bit more history of uh, Xinjiang in the, uh, in, uh, with Escal, I think it's important to take a longer-term horizon uh, to the whole thing. We entered Xinjiang 20, uh, 25 years ago. Uh, at first, our interest was that we, because we are a cotton house, so in order to produce the best quality product, you need the best quality raw materials. So that's why we entered Xinjiang 25 years ago. We started off with a spinning mill operation, and then later on with a ginning mill operation, and also with directly, so that we directly collect cotton from the Xinjiang farmers. And we also had a small uh, farming operation so that we could conduct seed research uh, to improve the, uh, the crops of, the co uh, of cotton. So this is the extent of our uh, supply chain extending all the way back to cotton seed research. And throughout the, throughout the years, we have been very engaged in Xinjiang. Um, in, when I first joined, uh, seven, that was like 16 years ago, the thing I heard of Xinjiang is we have been building a lot of schools and libraries uh, in Xinjiang, helping the rural areas to develop their education. Later on, we actually worked together with um, Novartis, for example. Uh, we established a, what we call the Health Express, 
going around the Xinjiang uh, rural areas to promote uh, hygiene, uh, to, to promote uh, protection against hepatitis. And also we have been working with the uh, Standard Chartered Bank to promote uh, what the microfinancing, to, pro to provide small loans to the cotton farmers in Xinjiang because many of them lacks the credit history to access the, the more uh, conventional uh, financial means. So if you look at the string of activities, uh, we've been fairly engaging with the community, trying to help them improve, not just from the, our own perspective, but also from the overall well-being of community, because um, we understand that Xinjiang, especially the rural areas, they might lack the resources. So allowing our people to engage there to help the rural areas, I think that's something that our people still feel very proud of. In fact, if not because of the COVID situation, every year we work with the uh, Polytechnic University and send a team of eye care people over to Xinjiang to help diagnostic some of the eye disease for the, uh, in, the, in the rural area of Xinjiang as well. Because early, early detection of any eye problem, many of the uh, uh, issues can be cured if detected early. So overall, um, our purpose in Xinjiang is really to engage in the community and expect. Uh, so this is part of the history. Now, interestingly, uh, the acquisition on our spinning mill of forced labor, it's in Changji. It was actually one of our most advanced uh, spinning mill. Uh, traditionally, a spinning mill for every 10,000 spindles, uh, they will need like 40 some people per shift. In our case, uh, we would, we, well, we need, we need for every 10,000 people, sorry, for every 10,000 spindles, they will need 15 people per shift. But then in our case, with this advanced spinning line that we have, we need one third of the people in that line. And in order to operate that line, we need people with better education, uh, with college education, with a more technical education in order to operate. So uh, we, have, we have been moving away from the deployment of just uh, lower education uh, workers into people we need uh, better training, better, better technical education. So the, the acquisition of us uh, employing forced labor come as a surprise to us because um, we have always been recruiting people, interviewing the people based on their own merits. Uh, the situation that felt led us into it was an article from the Wall Street Journal. And we were, uh, in, in the article, it mentioned that we were offered uh, 34 uh, uh, workers. But in fact, uh, the, those workers were introduced by the uh, Borio, but then we conducted independent interviews to recruit them. So whether to hire them, it's based on our own decision. And in fact, um, some of them have performed very well and they stayed on. Some of them, after a few years, they have de decided to leave. So, I mean, it's not that they are bonded labor, that they, they cannot leave. So, well, it is unfortunate of a situation like this, but then uh, this is something that's happening in the broader context between uh, the U.S. and China. I think one of the things that uh, in a scale, we've always been trying to bridge the East and the West, partly through the product that we make, and also partly through the people uh, that we engage with. Th these kind of connections is, a, is an important bridge uh, that we see how we build it between the, the, the East and the West. Uh, I guess culturally, there's a lot of differences. There's lots of different understanding between the two sides. Um, when they work well together, I think they do a lot of great things. It's unfortunately that in the last few years, things have taken a wrong turn. Um, I think in a scale, we... There's the business reality that we have to adjust based on what's happening, but we also continue trying to become that bridge, trying to build the bridge, uh, improve the communication and the understanding between the, the U.S. and China. Yeah, well, I think you're playing a, a good role in that. And I think, you know, when you supply the evidence to the Commerce Department, I mean, I'm pretty confident that things will be overturned. It sounds like it was a misunderstanding and a wrong, wrong ap application of, uh, of, of that law. So, Well, thank you for the confidence. And we certainly hope, hope to do that sooner than later. <laughs>
Yeah, wishing you well. So the, the, the final question I have actually is just a very general one. You know, you've, you've had experience doing business in China for many years, you know, 15, 20 years now. And I'm curious, what's the number one piece of advice you'd give people uh, who want to do business in China based on your experience? Well, I think it's, uh, it's very interesting when we compare our operations between China and the operations in other parts of the country. I think the, the team in China is much more resilient. When you throw them a problem, they actually work very hard to resolve it rather than throw their hands up and say, well, how do I do it? You help me do it. So I think this is primarily due to the experience. I think a lot of our colleagues have, um, they, some of them had good education, some of them might not. But then throughout the time, they have experienced a lot of things, a lot of challenges together. So I think they have been very used to having all these ups and downs. So say, for example, um, talking about this year in COVID, in COVID, well, we realized the situation in COVID, uh, it's going to hit us by, uh, so we reacted very promptly. Uh, in fact, it wasn't even a top-down driven where we have an emerge, uh, a crisis management committee and then having trickle down. But instead, um, for all the WeChat groups, people self-organized themselves. Uh, top to bottom, trying to under communicate up and down these, uh, the organization. So I think the resilience of the people in China, I think, makes a lot of things happen. So rather than for us as uh, executives, rather than trying to be very prescriptive on exactly what we do, I think my, my advice is we can be more um, prescriptive and saying what, what, what is the objective what we're trying to achieve? What is the constraint? What are some of the constraints that we're facing? And then throw them the problem and let them figure it out. And most of the time, they will come up with solutions that are better than what you can think of. And also to do it within a shorter time that you hope that they could achieve. So I think the resilience, uh, it's something that defines how, you, how people work in China. Now, of course, the, uh, the flip side of that, people are very good at organizing themselves uh, in these situations. Uh, the challenge is actually how to institutionalize some of these knowledge, institutionalize some of these practices. Because uh, I think the, the resilience comes with, okay, we'll jump from one uh, challenge to another before having the first one, having them settled and having them built into the, in, the organization. So I think it's a reminder that as we tackle new challenges, we also need to build the organizational structure to institutionalize some of the things that we learn from the first challenge before moving to the next one. Yeah, super interesting. And, and just, you know, want to thank you so much, uh, Wilkie, for joining and describing your experience, the experience of scale in China. You know, I know that our listeners will find it tremendously uh, fascinating and learn a lot from it. So thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on China Corner Office. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Marquis, Kaiser Kuo, and Jason McRonald. Did you enjoy the show? Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know your thoughts. And don't forget to subscribe to the feed for alerts when new episodes are published. See you soon. See you soon.